Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And look, there is a lot going on tonight. And a big loss for the former president, a federal appeals court is saying no to that special master review of documents that were seized at Mar-a-Lago. And this is first on CNN. A federal judge is ordering the former Trump White House attorneys, Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, to now testify in the DOJ's criminal investigation of the then president's effort to overturn the 2020 election. Plus, the Georgia Senate runoff is only now five days away. And a sign of just how crucial this race really is, well, look who's out on the campaign trail tonight, campaigning for Raphael Warnock and saying this about Herschel Walker. Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself (laughs) when I was seven. That's what you do, oh, at the end of it when you hear that. That's what just happened. And as his former boss is campaigning tonight, President Joe Biden and First Lady Dr. Jill Biden are holding their first state dinner, hosting French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife, Brigitte. And surprise! There's controversy about the menu. We've got a lot to talk about tonight. And here with me, National Security Attorney Bradley Moss, also Liam Donovan, former National Republican Senatorial Committee aide, and Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. First of all, can we just take a second to react to the laughter in that crowd? I mean, this is crunch time, right? This is not essentially thinking. This is the general. You're a little bit more composed and thinking, let's sort of have a different take. That, for President Obama, was really going at him. Yeah, and that's been a theme, I would say, in the last few days of Warnock's campaign is using Herschel Walker's own words against him. And they're running a really um, an ad that's gone pretty viral. That's just voters reacting to Herschel Walker. With the headphones. Yes, yes. And it's very powerful because, quite frankly, it's what we've been hearing from Georgia voters. Not all, of course, but... A lot of Georgia voters have been saying the same thing kind of throughout the campaign. Like, is this guy serious? Why is he being taken Mm. seriously? What's your reaction to it, Liam? I just watched President Obama out there having fun. I mean, this Mm. is a role he even to the extent that he ever was out on the trail uh, doing these sorts of things. He wasn't able to play that attack dog role. He is having fun. He's mixing it up. I think this is a role that Biden would have played on his behalf. And now that the shoe's on the other foot. So I think he's really feeling that role. We'll see if the voters agree with the role of it. But, you know, he might be a former president having some fun. Brad, you know who's not having fun tonight? I'm guessing another former president hoping to be president again. This was a very significant ruling by the 11th Circuit to say, you know that special master to review these documents that you took from the White House to Mar-a-Lago and why they're still there? No. Tell us why this is so significant. Yeah, if you're at Mar-a-Lago, hide the ketchup bottles. Things are going to start getting thrown. (laughs) So what the 11th Circuit did was it shut down this entire special master probe. It said the Judge Cannon, the judge out in Florida, who originally authorized the creation of this oversight, 
had exceeded her authority. She never had jurisdiction to look into it in the first place. And what the 11th Circuit outlines in this 21-page ruling was that the former president never put forward any facts, never put forward any sworn declarations, anything that would have backed up his claims that there was constitutional violations, that there was some irreparable harm. This was a ruling basically saying, we don't know what you were thinking, Judge Cannon, but you got it wrong. This whole thing's being shut down now. I mean, it almost seemed like their argument was, but I'm special, right? But I'm the former president, and you can't do this to a former president. That was the talking point about the audacity of executing a search warrant, although, albeit one that was validly issued, but still the fact that it went to Mar-a-Lago. That did not fly for this court because they were thinking about precedent, which we know is kind of a taboo word, thinking about how it's overturned recently in Washington, D.C. But, Brad, the idea of they didn't want to set precedent that said that this was somehow so special that when DOJ wanted to have an investigation and have a search warrant, that just because you didn't want it to happen, you got to pass. Yeah. So basically, when the 11th Circuit outlines it in this ruling, what they say is there's normal precedent, normal case law, which we're going to abide by. There's a second option, which is all criminal suspects, whoever is subject of a search warrant, could get this kind of process. We don't certainly think that's viable. And there's a third option, the Judge Cannon option, which is Donald Trump is just uber, uber, uber special and deserves this because he is Donald J. Trump, the former president. That wasn't a route they were willing to go. There was no basis to have done it in the first place. They stuck to where the law is right now. The Supreme Court will have the ultimate to say if they want to intervene. If they want to intervene. And of course, Liam, when you think about it, you have not only the, the lawyers who are now the counsel thinking about these issues, but you've got the lawyers that we all know, the Patrick Philbins, right, the Pat Cipollonis. These are significant figures in the overall thought about White House counsel and discussing the presidency more broadly. What do you make of the fact that this is happening now, that they are saying that they have to actually testify in a criminal grand jury probe? That's significant politically, too. I don't know this is helpful. I mean, look, this is a president who needs to be growing his coalition. He just lost an election in 2020. He's coming off an election where he had a significant uh, you know, downward effect on what should have been a much better election for Republicans. So he needs to be growing his base of support, not mm-hmm. shrinking it. The longer these are in the headlines, the worse it is for him. I think there's a tendency to say nothing matters. These opinions of Donald Trump are baked. And that might be true on the Republican side, at least among the 30 to 40 percent of the party that is rock hard for him. But the rest of the country is not like that. And I think there's a level of fatigue, even on voters who might have voted for him in 16 and potentially even in 2020. I mean, it it really feels in many respects like you're, you're bringing like the baggage with you, right? It's almost like the you've got the issue of whether it's exhausting and whether this is enough to get voters to be motivated to keep coming out. It's not as an attractive candidate, just thinking of the baggage alone. But part of this baggage on Capitol Hill is about what we're all waiting for, Tia. We're waiting for this report from the January 6th committee that goes beyond what we've seen in testimony that's already been aired, right? And we know from Congressman Zoe Lofgren, who was speaking today earlier, that the committee intends to actually release all the findings and to prevent the GOP, really, from having a talking point, which they've had for quite some time, about this being a political witch hunt, uh, not a bipartisan endeavor. Listen to what she had to say earlier today on our own airwaves. Well, they've been pretty clear that they'd like to undermine the work that we've done, but we're going to prevent that. We're going to release all the information we've collected so it cannot be selectively edited and spun. Will this be effective enough to just say, you know what, this this will stop the spin. This feels like a bit of a fool's errand to avoid it entirely, but will it be partially effective? Yeah, I don't don't think it'll stop the spin from Trump and his allies and those 
conservative Republicans that no matter what, they're going to always have a problem with the January 6th commission. However, um, the select committee. But I think it will help with the general public because we've shown we've seen that the committee has been very effective in how it's conducted itself, the hearings. And if it shows its work and is very transparent, I think most people will kind of uh, take that in good faith. Again, not on not on the extremes, but that's those people, their minds are never going to be changed really anyways. But a lot of Americans, I think, have a lot of faith in the committee and a lot of interest in the committee. And so I think the more information the committee provides, it'll be consumed. You know, I had a flashback to the lesson of my third grade teacher. Laura, just show your work. And then whatever answer you reach, we'll believe it. That's the, that's the crux of it. I mean, the idea of, can, of building credibility, of showing the work, because it really does undercut, to your very good point, the idea of, look, Here's what we have. You can interpret it how you will, but here's what it is. I still have questions, of course, about what that's going to look like, guys, because there were certain agreements that were made about the testimony that was given. And so if you're releasing everything, will names be redacted? Will personal data? I'm certainly sure we'll hear more about that tomorrow as well. Look, everyone, there's five days now until Georgia's Senate runoff, and one former president is nowhere to be seen. His name is Trump. Another is out on the campaign trail tonight. I'm back! All right, we're now just five days before the pivotal Georgia runoff that Democrats are hoping will give them 51 votes in the Senate. Tonight, former President Obama is campaigning with Senator Warnock and warning Georgia voters not to get tired. And John Lewis, even in his 70s, wasn't tired. I got no excuses. I can't be tired. And if I'm not tired, you can't be tired. If the men and women whether endure the sting of discrimination, the smack of belly clubs, we're tired. If the folks who had to fight those early fights, those were the tough fights for union rights and voting rights and gay rights and women's rights. If they didn't get tired, you can't be tired. CNN senior political analyst Kirsten Powers is here and Liam Donovan and Tia Mitchell are back. I mean, Kirsten, the idea of remember fired up and ready to go. This is a bit of a rift on that and the idea of not being tired, particularly because for many people, you know, it's not election day any longer. Right. It's election season. And here we are at a point when at first it was thought Georgia was going to be the decisive factor about who held the majority. Now that's not the case. It's about the one more. Is that going to be a resounding message? I mean, that's a tough message to sell trying to get people fired up about, but it's actually really important. And so as much as that can be conveyed to voters, but, you know, voters often aren't, you know, aren't following things that closely because they have lives, you know, and they have, they can't be following the, you know, ins and outs of Washington. But it's actually really important because, you know, right now, Joe Manchin basically runs the Democratic Party, right? So one person actually can make a really big difference. So this is also... A, 
you don't have anybody bringing out the voters necessarily like higher up on the ticket. And so you have to really get people riled up in order to get them to turn out. And so that's why it's important that the, President Obama is doing what he's doing. I mean, it's also true, right? I mean, if although this would give an opportunity for, say, Vice President Kamala Harris maybe to travel a little more because she's not deciding the, the tiebreaker. But remember, in 2020, when there was a 50-50 Senate, there was an agreement about how to staff the committees. We had the idea of the even divide of Republicans and Democrats on these committees. If there are 51 Democrats, there's no longer the requirement that have to happen between Schumer and McConnell to do that. Now, that's a nuance that many voters are probably thinking, go out because the committee assignments, but it's very important nonetheless, right? The stakes are very real. And it's not just that because, I mean, the the amount of floor time that is expended on discharging things from those tied committees, um, all the other rules. I mean, this is a a body that works on consent and consensus. Mm -hmm. And 50-50 gives the minority an inordinate amount of power in a chamber where they already have a significant amount of power. So I think that's the risk is the anticlimax around the fact that Democrats have already clinched the Senate would risk a depression turnout. But I think based on the numbers we're already seeing, Tia can speak to this, they're, they're actually blowing it out right now. And they, the, the, the Warnock people have to feel good about the numbers the way they look right now, but they can't take their foot off the gas. That's why you're bringing out President Obama. That's why you're trying to run through the tape, because yeah. they need to keep this, uh, this electorate as young as possible, as diverse as possible. And Republicans are trying to tug it back older and a little bit whiter. On that point, Tia, and I'd love to hear your reaction to this, because you did hear tonight President Obama talking about specifically Georgia women and the idea of who would fight and turn out. And reminder, it was thought to be Rovember at one point. Listen to what he had to say. Who's going to fight for you? Is it the party whose main agenda is cutting taxes for the rich and big corporations? The party that wants to gut Social Security and Medicare? Flood our streets with more guns? Decide who you love, when you should start a family? Or is it the party that's trying to put people back to work and lower costs and make health care more affordable and keep our communities safe and save our planet and give every woman the ability to make her own decisions about her body? That's the choice in this election. I mean, he certainly knows what side of the bread is buttered and it's women voters, right? Yeah. And I mean, of course, he's preaching to the choir. You know, you've got to be a pretty fired up Warnock supporter to wait in the line and get in a big crowd to hear President Obama speak. But it's all about energizing the base so that they can then go home and encourage others to vote. And what we know is that abortion was a motivating factor in the midterm elections. It's one of the reasons why Democrats were so successful. Yes, those pocketbook issues, inflation, the economy, number one for voters on both sides of the aisle. But abortion was way up there. And a lot of voters said it mattered when it came to which candidates they supported in the general election. And so now there's clear contrast between Warnock and Walker on the issue of abortion and many of those like culture war issues. And I think President Obama was, you know, smart to highlight them again as a motivating factor going into the runoff. Liam, in terms of the contrast um, and Kirsten, excuse me, I'd love to have you weigh in as well. Um, There is a contrast in terms of who is showing up to endorse and rev up a crowd. You've got the former president, Barack Obama, 
for Senator Warnock. Senator Lindsey Graham is going to be uh, stumping for Herschel Walker. I think Mike Pompeo was supposed to attend in some way, but he has a family emergency and cannot no longer attend. Um, I wonder what you make of Senator Lindsey Graham there to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think you've had a, a pretty big uh, crowd of people throughout this election come down. I think it was Tom Cotton at one point. Uh, Leader McConnell was down there. Um, so having Lindsey Graham come in, this is just, is just you know, strong Trump allies, people that are trying to, uh, you know, get out the, the base, people that can, can appeal to that uh, element of the party. But I just remember being down there for the 2008 runoff, and it was Sarah Palin coming up to, to rile up the crowd. This is something that you always try to do is pull out your best surrogates. Um, I think that was the challenge on the Democratic side. I think uh, uh, you had young Jeezy and T.I. out there uh, trying, trying to get out the, the vote for, um, for, for the, the Democrat there. So having President Obama is, is, a, is a pretty big counterbalance, and Republicans don't really have anybody to bring in when Donald Trump's on the sidelines. Kirsten, I knew his playlist included young Jeezy and T.I. <laughs> I just knew it, Liam. I did. What do you make of Senator Lindsey Graham there? Again, this is an, an, at a time when you've got... A lot of money going into these races at this late juncture, of course, and the Democrats outspending, which probably reminiscent of what Senator Lindsey Graham did with Jamie Harrison, where he was outspent and begging for people to mm-hmm. contribute. I, I mean, Lindsey Graham and Barack Obama are not on par with mm-hmm. each other. And I, I, you know, there's, but, but I think Lindsey Graham has been one of his most outspoken supporters. And, you know, I, I personally don't think Lindsey Graham's going to really inspire that many people to turn out to vote. But it can't hurt him, I guess. And, you know, it's been Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz really trying to send the message. We've seen these, you know, them escorting him on his interviews, basically clearly trying to send a very a message that he's going to do what we tell him to do. You know, he's going to vote the way we tell him to vote. And that's the message they're trying to get to the people that are feel, maybe feeling a little squeamish about some of the stories that have come out about Herschel Walker. Uh, you know, and they're just saying, ignore those stories. This is, you know, a transaction, basically, kind of like it was with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And he's may have possibly paid for an abortion, but he's going to vote against abortion rights. That idea of the sort of so-called Manchurian candidate is also being used against him and the thought of how this will play for Democrats. But finally, in the time we have left here, I, I am curious about President Biden's proposal of changing the order in which primaries are conducted, hoping to have South Carolina go first. Um, we realize this is, a, this is during a week, of course, when, um, you know, Congressman Jim Clyburn spoke about needing representation of the South in leadership. What do you make of the prospects of this being a successful proposal? You know, it's really interesting because all these states are clamoring. You know, you've got Michigan in the mix. You've got Georgia in the mix. You've got Nevada in the mix. And so I think this is the start of a conversation. It does not look like something that's going to be easily settled because no matter what, there are going to be states that are making the case. I think there is a strong case, though, for South Carolina, for a state from the South where, you know, there's a big population center that's not currently represented in the early states. There are much more diverse states than what we currently have as our first states that are you know, more representative of the demographics of America now. So it's clear that there will be a shift, but I don't know if Biden's proposal is just going to be accepted easily. There might be a little bit of a fight first. And the point to have black voters assumingly have their way in earlier, that's the point. Yeah, well, to have the early states be states that look more like America Mm -hmm. and aren't so, you know, 
Iowa, not only is it not the most diverse state, but the way it conducts primaries are kind of out of step with the vast majority of the U.S. states. So it just, you know, seems like a relic of a, of a, of a time that doesn't really affect American politics now, especially on the Democratic side. Yeah. The thing that's interesting about it is if this had been the way it was set up when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were running, we might not have had a Barack Obama because Iowa is what launched Barack Obama, this mm, white state, right? At a time when black voters were really aligned with Hillary Clinton and were very skeptical, not because they didn't support Barack Obama, because they didn't think white people would support Barack Obama, right? They were thinking like, a well, black president, is that really going to happen? And then I- Iowa voters were the ones that actually vo- voted for him and then he was on his way. And so I do think it's important to have a more diverse representation in the first votes, but it is kind of interesting how it, it's worked out, right? Of course, South Carolina is also, you know, I mean, Joe Biden, where would his candidacy be, right? It's no, like, just, it's just interesting. It's, it wasn't, it didn't help Kamala Harris. It didn't help Cory Booker, right? Yeah. It's it's an interesting kind of conundrum. Well, I tell you, there's going to be a lot of proposed candidates who have to start learning the South Carolina state fair food choices ahead (laughs) of Iowa, if that's the case. But look, everyone, it's the final election night of a surprising midterm season. So join CNN for the Georgia runoff between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Our coverage starts Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Joe Biden is also holding his first state dinner as president, hosting French President Emmanuel Macron, and they held bilateral discussions for nearly three hours. The big topics on their agenda are next. State dinner for French President Emmanuel Macron, the first since he moved into the West Wing. Check out part of his toast. Knowing that we can always, always count on one another as allies and friends. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me. Please join me in raising our glasses, which neither one of us have. There you go. Raising our glasses to President Macron and his wife Brigitte, to France, ladies and gentlemen, to the history that binds us and the values that still unite us and to the future we're going to forge together. Viva la France and God bless America. Kirsten Powers, Liam Donovan and Tia Mitchell are all back with us. Now, this guys, this is the first state dinner since 2019. It's also, of course, his in his first presidency. I wonder with an event like this, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of the pomp and circumstance was really sort of stripped away. Remember different award ceremonies, people starting to question, do we really need things like this? This is a time when diplomacy is being questioned in terms of its effectiveness. Liam, what do you make of the need to still have things like this? I think it's an important signal that we're back, you know, uh, we're back in business. I think it's a sign of normalcy, Mm. normal things like bilateral diplomacy on our soil uh, with key allies, allies that might have been antagonized by the previous presidency, um, uh, allies who had bumpy early stages of the Biden presidency. So this is an important ritual. It's something we haven't seen, as you said, in years. Um, And I think it's it's a sign that we're back to normal, both as an administration, back to normal as a country. Well, you know, there was a moment that was kind of not normal today in terms of reaction, although maybe people think it is in terms of the ability to criticize an administration over things. They're, they're serving 
certain foods today, Kirsten. I know you're smiling because you've, and I talked about this. Um, butter poached lobster, which frankly makes my mouth water. And I'll admit that to you, but I also had SpaghettiOs for dinner. So that's probably why I have two kids. But, you know, the glamorous life of it all, they had hot dogs in theirs. It was wonderful. But, Kirsten, when you think about it, um, the reason they were questioning it is because they were questioning. Here was a tweet from Representative Jared Golden out of Maine, where we think of lobsters, of course, saying, if the Biden White House can prioritize purchasing 200 Maine lobsters for a fancy dinner— POTUS should also take the time to meet with the main lobsterman his administration is currently regulating out of business. It was an opportunity to really point out hypocrisy that not many maybe have focused on. I mean, I think that's a fair point, honestly. You know, I think they have, they feel main lobster people feel that there's an existential threat to their business um, because of regulations that they want the president to deal with. And it's a good opportunity. I'd say give your communications director a raise uh, because that's a great way to get attention. And I I think it's totally fair. I I don't, you know, it's not out of bounds. When you look at it, um, Tia, and think about the the discussions, and obviously it's in a way um, maybe rich nation problems to talk about the poached lobster dinner knowing that three hours worth, they had a sit-down conversation, the French president with President Biden, and the focus was on Ukraine. We know, known as the breadbasket of Europe, the impact of the invasion into Ukraine having extraordinary implications on food sourcing across the globe, particularly in areas of Africa. When you think about what happened behind those closed doors, what do you think transpired to maybe move a needle in that direction? Well, I think it's always good when, you know, leaders of these nations can meet face to face because it's not, they don't get to get together very often. They don't get to do one-on-one very often. You know, President Macron brought, you know, all of his top aides and he can meet with all these American folks and members of Congress. And, and so it wasn't just a dinner, you know? And so I think it is important because Ukraine's not the only thing they had to talk about. It was an important thing, but they needed to talk about China. They probably needed to talk about climate change. Um, the, the, the issues are endless. And so what, however much time they were able to spend, and President Macron has been everywhere. He went to NASA. Again, he went to meet with Congress. So again, it's, it was a lot of FaceTime because the leaders know that the, their issue list is long. And the FaceTime did include, you're right, they talked about the Inflation Reduction Act you spoke about, the ideas of climate change. This relationship between France and the U.S. so strategically advantaged, um, advantageous at a time like this. It is. And this is, I mean, this is the original ally of the United States. Uh, this is somebody who is at the core, right in the middle of everything from Ukraine and diplomacy with Russia, uh, with, with China, as you said, with Iran. So there is uh, so much that Macron is in the middle of and having that relationship being uh, as strong as possible and, and demonstrating to the world that it's as strong as possible is really important right now. I mean, the demonstrations of diplomacy, I think, is really the, the, the uniting factor here, what this looks like for other nations to know who you can mess with and who you cannot, and essentially the answer to the question, mm-hmm. you and what army, right? Mm-hmm. Well, listen, um, coming up next, we're going to talk about LeBron James because he is speaking out, not about lobster, but about not being asked by reporters about a 1957 photo of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, who was at a racial desegregation protest. LeBron says there's a double standard at play here going on.
LeBron James calling out reporters at a press conference this week. The NBA star asking reporters why they were quick to question him about Kyrie Irving, but not about Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones in a recently emerged photo from 1957. Now, the picture appears to show a then 14-year-old Jones at an anti desegregation protest outside North Little Rock High School in Arkansas. I think to be clear, it was a protest about trying to maintain segregation, and this is the problem here. Here's what James had to say about the coverage. As a black man, as a black athlete, as someone with power and a platform, when we do something wrong or, or something that people don't agree with, it's on every single tabloid, every single news coverage. It's on the bottom ticker. It's asked about every single day. But it seems like to me that the whole Jerry Jones situation photo, and I know it was years and years ago, and we all make mistakes. I get it. But it seemed like it's just been buried under, like, oh, it happened. Okay, we just, we just move on. Joining me now, CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan and former NFL player Ephraim Salam. I'm glad to have you both here. You know, let me let me start with you, Ephraim, because you think LeBron has a point. And frankly, I have to tell you, the coverage about, say, a Kyrie Irving compared to what's happened with Jerry Jones, very different. And here's what Jerry Jones had to say, I mind you, about that picture. Here he is. That was, uh, uh, gosh, uh, 60... 65 years ago, and uh, a curious kid, uh, I didn't know at the time the uh, monumental uh, 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 event, really, that was, that was going on, and uh, uh, I'm sure glad that uh, uh, we're a long way from that. Ephraim, what do you make about this, of the standard that LeBron is referring to, a double standard of not only the coverage, but also the way in which black athletes have to atone, it seems he was implying. What do you think? Um, I, I, I get exactly what LeBron James is saying. And as a former professional athlete myself, I've been asked, it, uh, asked a myriad of questions about non-sports related things, non-football related things, uh, social justice things, and so on and so forth. So um, he, he this wasn't even about the photo of Jerry Jones. He wasn't even talking about the actual photo and what he thought about Jerry Jones. What he was talking about was, where's the media coverage? Where, where is the firestorm? Where is all of the questions? And, 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 and I saw some of the comments, well, why would they ask you about Jerry Jones, LeBron? That's football. That's not basketball. Uh, I would probably say LeBron James is probably the athlete that, it's, that was – has been asked more questions about non-basketball-related things, uh, uh, more so than any other uh, professional athlete. Uh, and so to, 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 to say, uh, you know, what do you care? I, he was expecting the question, and, and, and it's, it's a shame that the media coverage uh, uh, for Jerry Jones in that photo wasn't the same and, and it wasn't as aggressive as for Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving 
is still going through backlash. They suspended him. He lost money, all of these things. And all he did was tweet something. And I get it. Was it right or wrong? That's for you to determine and that's for you to decide. But as people in the media, we should have a standard and hold everyone accountable. And that's just not happening. Well, Christine, I want to bring you in here in the conversation because the statement, you know, all he did was tweet. Let's just be very clear. It wasn't as if he tweeted LOL or an emoticon in some way, an emoji. Um, the, the concern was about the substance of matter and nature of the documentary dealing with anti-Semitism. And so, but the, the larger point here is about I think it is a bit of a cop-out to suggest, oh, LeBron, we only want to ask you about, about basketball. This is a person infamously who was told to stay in his lane because he had the nerve to venture outside of athletics and talk about social issues. So that's a cop-out. Uh, yes. As a journalist, I would promise you, Laura and Ephraim, that I would ask those questions and I would have tried to ask them as quickly as possible after the Washington Post story. It absolutely is an issue. It is deserving of our attention. Racism at any time, 65 years ago or today, matters. And especially because Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, the most lucrative team in American sports, any league, uh, you know, any, any sport, um, he, uh, in, in addition to being the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, he's basically like the second most powerful person in the NFL to Roger Goodell, the commissioner, Laura. And he has never, as the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, had a black head coach. Mm. So it matters. And that is, as you know, a big issue. 60 to 70 percent of NFL players are African-American. And the Dallas Cowboys, the marquee team in the NFL, never a black coach. So that under Jerry Jones. So that is a big issue. And it relates to now. And I think we can all agree. Anti-Semitism is terrible. It's wrong. And we should always ask questions and root it out and discuss it as much as possible. Racism at any point, terrible. We should discuss it. And I agree completely that these issues both deserve attention. Ephraim, what's your reaction? And I, and I know, by the way, LeBron James was a, a lifelong, avid Dallas Cowboys fan. Of course. But he recently yeah. came out to talk about how he switched his you know, allegiance to the Cleveland Browns, in part because of the Dallas Cowboys' position and policy about having to stand for and, um, and only in one specific way honor the national anthem. What's your reaction? My, my reaction is, you know, you can't just dismiss the past. You can't say and laugh off, oh, that was so long ago. Uh, <laughs> wow, they dug that up. That was so long ago um, because we're still dealing with those same type of issues now, currently. And when you talk about the disparity between uh, coaches and people of power and NFL organizations and owners compared to the players who make up between 75 and 80 percent of NFL teams and there are no black head coaches, very few black head coaches, no African-American owners, then, yeah, that's something that you can't laugh off because we're seeing it play out in real time. You want to talk about desegregation and segregation and all of that. Well, it seemed like the top of, you know, the food chain in the NFL is pretty segregated. So if we really want to get in, in, into the issue, we can, we can talk about that, and, and, and then that will fall on Jerry Jones' show. Okay, what have you done as one of the most prominent owners to desegregate the ownership group and, 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 and head coaches and, and, and things like that? So it's very important. It's not something you can just laugh off. And us as media, we have to hold people accountable. We really do have to hold people accountable, just not the athletes or just not African-Americans. There's a double standard here that it, 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 it at some point has to stop. 
I agree. Everyone's feet should be held to the fire for the for the issues that matter most. And it is a more than fair question if you are in an ownership position. And of course, I know that the the use of the term. If there are photos like this, did it influence? Does it influence your decision making process about aspects right now in the year 2022 or everything since that photo to now? A fair question. And I encourage people to continue to ask. That's the business we're in. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the U.S. is gearing up now to face off against the Netherlands in the World Cup as the final 16 teams take shape. And so will one of America's star players be ready for the game after getting injured against Iran? We'll find out. We're now two days away from the United States' next big World Cup game against the Netherlands. They play Saturday morning at 10 Eastern, so set your clocks. But all eyes are on Christian Pulisic. He's a star on the U.S. men's national team, who, as you know, was injured while scoring that game-winning goal against Iran. Today, he spoke with the press. Listen. Like I said before, um, it, I'm, I'm taking it day by day right now, and I will do everything in my power to to you know, work with this medical team and uh, make sure that I can, I can play. Back with me now, Christine Brennan, and joining us, Wall Street Journal sports reporter Joshua Robinson. You're out there in Qatar. I'm so glad that you're here helping us to understand as well. Let me start with you because I, I want to know what you're anticipating most on Saturday. The Netherlands, I mean, not a team to sneeze at, a very significant and very strong team. But look, over here, we're rooting for USA. Well, the, the bad news is that the Netherlands is probably the best team never to win the World Cup. Mm. Uh, the good news is that this is maybe a slightly diminished version of the Netherlands, one that, you know, doesn't play its traditional style and that for the first time, maybe uh, for a U.S. team at the World Cup, feels pretty beatable. I mean, that's really good. I mean, and thinking about it, Christine, the idea of, I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit of the Susan Lucci of this other World <laughs> Cup team. I'm probably dating myself from that analogy. Right. But it's still the idea of a lot of people counted this U.S. team out. I mean, the idea of, we knew about the discussions with Iran and the, um, the political overshadowing aspect mm-hmm. of things. But this team has people having a bit of a spring in their step, the coverage of it. This team in and of itself, a draw. Absolutely. Joshua, you know, is doing such a great job covering. Uh, and uh, back over here on this side of the pond, Joshua, um, the, 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 I mean, people are really into this. And we are, I think the a thing that we all knew was going to happen, this in, the tournament, of course, is November and December. It's not in the summer as it mm-hmm. usually is. It's going right up against college football, Michigan, Ohio State, big NFL games, and it is more than holding its own TV ratings-wise. And by the way, there's history being made to women. I mean, I mean all, all women refs in a match as well. Absolutely. So for the first time ever, the head referee and the other two referees, all three were women in the uh, Germany-Costa Rica match. And, of course, they did a great job. And uh, good uh, credit to FIFA for, for doing that. And uh, another example of how the game is reaching out and uh, certainly trying to give more opportunities for women, which is wonderful to see. Joshua, you know, there has been some disappointment and some shocks as well through the World Cup. And you're out there. I mean, there is the idea of um, the counting out. I mean, both Germany and Belgium today have been knocked off the World Cup in the, in the next round. What happened? Well, Belgium, which was a team that was touted for so long as having this unique generation of talent, it turns out 
got old. Uh, it's what happens to all of us. And so they got to a point where, uh, where that golden generation just aged out a little bit, got a little bit stale, and was knocked out in the group stage in a really shocking way. But even crazier was what happened in the uh, group involving Spain and Germany. Turns out that Japan won the group. Um, after beating both Spain and Germany. And so what happened uh, today is that in beating Spain 2-1, a result no one expected, Japan also eliminated Germany, despite uh, Germany's win against Costa Rica. So that was really one of the upsets of the tournament so far. I mean, right now, it seems it's anyone's match to win. So everyone's team learn- leaning in to see what happens next. So great to hear from both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, speaking of, well, maybe a legal matchup, there's some big legal setbacks for former President Trump with an appeals court in the Mar-a-Lago case essentially telling him you don't get special treatment because you were the president. So the question is, where does the investigation go next? Former President Donald Trump suffering two major legal blows tonight. A federal appeals court stopping the special master review of documents that were seized at his Mar-a-Lago resort. This coming as federal judges orders Trump's former White House lawyer and his deputy to give additional testimony to the criminal grand jury investigating the effort to overturn the 2020 election. Plus, there are new developments tonight in the investigation into the stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students. Coming up, you'll hear what police are saying about who else may have lived in the house where the students were found. I want to bring in former Obama White House Senior Director Nayira Huck, also former National Republican Senatorial Committee aide Liam Donovan, and National Security Attorney Bradley Moss. Glad to have all of you here on a night like this. First of all, Nayira, let me turn to you, because the significance of the judges saying, "Mm, actually, you're not going to be treated in a specifically special way because you're a former president. You can't help but think about the idea of no one being above the law. Maybe it's a little more true tonight. The idea of in the indictment rule, I mean, not being able to indict a sitting president. It's a former president now. What do you make of it politically? I'm not sure how much this is going to impact Trump politically or legally, mm. especially since we have Merrick Garland as the attorney general no longer having a Democratic Congress. If the moves were not made when there were all these other legal questions, all these other questions about national security documents, there were other opportunities other than continuing long investigations to hold the former president accountable. How do you hold the former president accountable now with Republicans in control of Congress? What is the political incentive? What is the legal process? And is that even is that even necessary at this point for something other than saying he did it because it's the right thing to do? There was an opportunity for that and to have an impact mm. on how our country sees our democracy. And it seems like the White House and the attorney general have missed that window. Well, Brad, do you agree? I mean, you're, this is your specialty as well in your wheelhouse. And I'm just wondering, I mean, yes, there's going to be a Republican majority in the House. Um, there's going to be a Democratic majority in the Senate, albeit a very slim margin, irrespective of what will happen in Georgia. But the idea of a window missed, if you're DOJ, has it been missed? Is that door closed to you? No, and I'd have to respectfully disagree on that. It may have been missed from a political context for the January 6th committee. I think they did about 
all they could to outline everything for the public. The public could take what they wanted from those facts. There's going to be a historical record. There's going to be a public report. For the Justice Department, their goal has to be, if we choose to do this, if we choose to indict a former president, which has never been done, we have to have it all. And we have to have every single I dot and every single T crossed. So they can't, you know, can't be concerned about how the House switched or what the Senate majority is going to be. Their goal has to simply be, is there a crime? Can we win at trial? And should we do it? That's the end of it for them. But that's the concern that we should have had all along. Is there a crime, no matter how egregious or minimal, and are we all equal before the law? And that's part of the challenge we've seen with this Justice Department as it's moved forward or chosen not to move forward when it's had referrals sent, uh, when it's had the opportunity to potentially prosecute uh, other situations of contempt. It, right? Every, every legal recourse has not actually been pursued up until this point. So why now? Well, let's unpack this. The what the I thought um, Bill Clinton. What the is is what the it is. <laughs> um, we're talking about it. On the one hand, right there is the January sixth and the idea of um, White House Counsel and the Deputy having to testify in a criminal grand jury investigation, January sixth related. Then there's the Mar-a-Lago documents. So there are maybe two bites at the proverbial apple to test this theory of whether the window is closed. When you think about it, Liam, on the issue of the Mar-a-Lago documents specifically. How do you see it panning out? Because this really becomes more and more a bit of an anvil because to me, a single question has not been answered. Why do you have them? Well, Why talking, do you have them? I was talking to, to Brad about this uh, just a minute ago. I mean, we were talking about, I think just like everything else, this is a guy who likes his, his trophies. He likes his mementos. He, he likes to uh, show off that he was there. These are his precious letters from, you know, the, the great leader of North Korea or what have you. I mean, this is his, his proof that he was there in the room. He loves to show off. That's who he is. And they're his. This is, you know, he, he was the president and they're his personal items. And so that's why he had them. The question is, why didn't he give them back when they asked nicely? Mm-hmm. I think that's the open question. It might be the long tail of it. So when you think about this, Brad, the idea, just talk to me about this. And I, I want to hear your reaction to this area as well. But the fact that this ju- this circuit court, that this this particular panel said no, said you you can't take your ball and go home and keep it there and no one can test you on it. How significant is that given that the lower court judge was doing what was really unprecedented to have this special master review things? We're talking about documents of extraordinary, we're told through reporting, national security and classified levels that, I mean, remember that display of photographs on the floor with the top secret, et cetera? You know this so well. What is the impact of this judicial panel saying no? This was the 11th Circuit bringing us back to reality. Judge Cannon issued her ruling back in September, created this whole new area of precedent with respect to a pre-indictment special master just for Donald Trump. This was the 11th Circuit with two Trump-appointed judges saying, no, enough is enough with this game. It's all a sideshow There never was jurisdiction in the first place or authority for Judge Cannon to create the special master. What is unclear at this point is to what extent this changes the time frame for the Justice Department going forward. Do they already have enough? We know they're still bringing people before the grand jury. Are they preparing to indict or are they going to decide they don't have what they want in order to bring this kind of a precedent indictment? That, I think we're going to have to wait till that after the holidays. It's a question of how much did this slow them down in the processing. This is, your, to your point as well, I mean, Nair, the idea of what Congress has to accomplish in the time that this lame duck session is going on. I mean, we're told from reporting that they are going to meet tomorrow to discuss criminal referrals, possibly January 6th committee. But we also know that they are hoping to get, and this is Washington, D.C. talk for 
when I get to it. They're aiming to get the report out December 12th. I mean, my bureaucracy mind and think about this thing, sure, that'll be around that time. But there's a lot to get done, Nara, between December here and December 12th, and then between now and, of course, January 3rd. I mean, look at this. You've got the final report due, the funding bill by the 16th, the annual Pentagon funding bill, the, the debt the limit being raised. You've got the president signing off on the same-sex marriage bill. That's just a sliver of things going on. When you think about the politics of all of this, what is the likelihood that the American people, to your point, have faith that it'll get done? Well, there is no universe in when I had my high-level security clearance that I could even bring one document home to actually do real work mm. and not have lost my job immediately. Right? That's just So the idea that we all know that these national security documents were just sitting there and it's this long, protracted process has already eroded a little bit of that trust that we are all, as national security professionals, equal before the law. So that's part of the, mm-hmm. the personal perspective there. Now, on the political side... There's always the opportunity for a Christmas surprise, right? That if you really want to make some news and get everybody hopping, but the reality is we've had those opportunities before and we have not seen that this is what the appetite for this Justice Department. They play it safe. They want everything buttoned up. That takes time. And that means the accountability for any of these things may be well beyond the public's attention or any political consequences. Liam, on the report, do you think that the January 6th committee, Nayara seems to be saying that there is not the, maybe the, the hope or the credibility or, you know, they're not holding their breath on what's going to happen in DOJ. But I know I'm interested in seeing this report from the January 6th committee. Do you think there still is an appetite to figure out what's in it and, and what might not have been seen on television? I think that limited window is is certainly a, a cause for urgency. And I think, you know, there was an open question as to whether the January 6th proceedings as they as they stood would have an impact on the election. And I think you can take away as Democrats from this election, everything went into making that a success relative to expectations. So they can see that as validation of their process, of how they comported themselves. And I think coming out with a final report in that time is, is the sort of culmination of that effort. Um, the, the laundry list of things Congress has to get done are, I think, separate from that parallel process of the Democratic considerations of what we can do while we have the power. Everything else requires Republican sign-off to get funding done, to get the NDAA done, things like that. So I think this is a separate consideration. They have a lot to get done, but this is firmly in the hands of House Democrats. Well, look, newsflash, Congress, just because the new Congress will be sworn in, like it doesn't restart the clock for Americans to go, oh, I guess I can't ask the questions any longer. We're having a new Congress there. I wouldn't bet on that, Washington, D.C., but you know we've all been wrong before about that. Look, 26 American, 26 million Americans, excuse me, are on pins and needles. Why? They're waiting to find out whether they'll get relief from their student debt. And the Supreme Court says they've got to wait at least until February, more likely June. So what are borrowers supposed to do? There's a new legal setback for the Biden administration's student loan debt forgiveness plan. The Supreme Court today keeping a block on the president's plan, announcing that they will hear arguments on the case, but not till February. Back with me, Nayira Huck and Liam Donovan. Also joining us, CNN correspondent Mark Stewart. Mark, let me begin with you here, because look, this is pretty substantial that the Supreme Court wants to weigh in on a matter like this. But also, they're keeping the debt relief on pause while they are anticipating the oral arguments. How long could we really be in limbo here? 
Yeah, that is a very big unknown. But let's just look at the roadmap that we've been able to establish based off of our reporting so far. First of all, I mean, as you have mentioned, this is a program that has just been riddled with legal challenges and and, and legal chapters along the way. But the goal, again, is for the Supreme Court to hear this case in February with a decision likely in June. Now, again, we are talking about more than 20 million people have a, who have applied for this program. And it's very important to stress that no debt relief um, has, been, has been issued at this point. There have been no cancellations, Laura, at least at, least at this point. That's a really important point because you don't want to have the idea that people initially who were able to get on and thinking about approval were able to benefit and then the rest of the people waiting in line. But if you were to go to the website right now and try to apply, I mean, this is what you would see. They're alerting you to the fact that there is this outstanding litigation now before the Supreme Court. Mark, I mean, what does this mean for people, though, who are trying to plan? I mean, people have to order their lives and their finances, and student loan debt is very significant for millions and millions of Americans. How can people plan? What is the course correction? This is very tough, and the simple answer is just even more uncertainty. I mean, the one thing, Laura, about reporting the story, I always learn something new, including the fact that student debt is greater than credit card debt, auto debt, that's according to the New York Federal Reserve, but it obviously, despite the politics, whatever you feel about the policy, I mean, it is a financial stress in people's lives. In fact, the National Association of Realtors did some research uh, over the last few years, and it shows that this type of debt gets in the way of home buying and other financial decisions. It is a burden that can haunt students well into adulthood. Absolutely. And we turn to the panel here in in D.C. I mean, everyone who's ever taken out a loan or tried to get a mortgage or anything else thinks about revolving credit limits, revolving debt, your your debt to income ratio. And student loan debt is like top of the heap for so many people for years, decades and oftentimes. And the idea that no one wants to be in the position politically to say, no, no. I mean, you should have to you, you have to deal with this, although that's not true traditionally, right, Nayara? Because that was part of the issue in reaction to his proposal. Some said, well, why should I have to pay for the debt that you chose to get? Is that part of the political conversation still to this day, do you think? Oh, I think there's a significant part of the population where, that still believes that because I suffered, you should have to suffer too, mm. right? And so the idea, I paid off my student loans, you can figure out how to do it. But that it, it, we forget that this is a unique generational problem, right? That, that California public schools, some of the best colleges in the country, all used to be free up until Ronald Reagan decided that people should be paying tuition for them. There has been a 2,500% increase in college tuition since 1970. Mm. So Generation X, millennials who are now in their 40s trying to buy homes, uh, you know, stuck with gig economy work, no pension guarantees, are also saddled with student loan debt, trying to fulfill a promise that they were given that this is how you advance in society. This is how you get ahead. And it's simply not the same way it worked for our parents. So we are now looking for solutions to effectively following what our elders told us. And our elders are still largely the ones making the decisions of how the economic system is going to work. I mean, Liam, those legislative solutions that Nayara is is talking about, I mean, they're not yet tangible, 
right? The idea that President Biden, as part of the campaign promise, tried to have this policy implemented, some in a cynical reaction think it was just done to fulfill a promise, knowing full well it would never truly manifest. Others said, hey, this is why prior presidents and prior Congress has not um, actually acted this way. You can't do it. So is this like the untenable sort of limbo indefinitely because no one's going to want to try to restart it or be able to do it effectively? Well, I think you have to think about the fact that this wasn't done until, what, September of the election year. There were two years where the president obviously had substantive political and legal doubts about whether this was the right thing to do. And this is the manifestation of that and the fact that it's hung up in the courts. But in terms of whether it's a solution to the problem, it certainly treats symptoms and it would be relief, real relief for millions of people, but it doesn't get to the systemic structural issues of the explosion of the costs. And if anything, it might exacerbate it by, you know, if, if you, it's, it's like just the general inflation problems. If you make things cheaper to the consumer, then the institutions are just, you know, growing that, the tuition to... But that's, to, that's the magic part of how the government back loans work that the government has already accounted for what's not being paid back. Right. So this is the, the, the financial magic that you don't get told about when you're 18 mm-hmm. is that high powered institutions have ways of writing these things off. And the U.S. government writes off debt all the time. So this might not have an inflationary impact if it is forgiven. But as you said, it, it's that structural problem of if you're giving free money to institutions, all of these colleges, private and public, had just all they did was raise tuition rates. Well, I think if you want to get Republicans involved in a solution, uh, that conversation has to be about how to fix that problem. And, and you know, in, in this populist moment, I think you're not going to have problems getting Republicans to go after some of these institutions in a way that makes them either curb those costs or, or you know, share in the solution. Um, I think the other piece of this is as the um, educational attainment uh, and, and political sorting uh, of the parties has played out. Republicans are, are dealing with a base that is less college educated. The fairness issue is, informs all of this. So I think Republicans are much more uh, geared toward you know, uh, the idea of vo- vocational trades, of, of you know, different education than the traditional liberal mm-hmm. arts degree. So that's the other dynamic that I think there's opportunity there legislatively, but it's what makes it so difficult because- there- There has been a strong conservative history from the 1980s. Reagan, Nixon, Reagan advisors having admitted that the the danger of an educated proletariat, right, that there might be class divisions that happen if too many people get access to college and education. So it does feed into that sense of the base that Mm -hmm. that, it's not as necessary. But if you are a woman, if you are black, you were denied these opportunities, period, in that era. So this, a college degree, a legal degree, a medical degree, to have that representation is necessary. And the only way to have done that is through predatory student loans. Nair Huck, Liam Donovan, I did not forget about you as well. Mark Stewart, thank you for your reporting as well. Nice to hear from all of you. This topic is going nowhere. We have probably till the end of the, of the Supreme Court term in June to figure out how this will all really go down. Also, there are still more questions than answers in the brutal stabbing deaths of four Idaho college students. The latest developments are next. Well, there are new developments tonight in the investigation of the unsolved killings of four University of Idaho students. People tell, police tell CNN that there may have been 
a previously unknown person living in the house where the victims were found. CNN's Veronica Miracle has the latest. For the first time, police tell CNN there may have been six people living at the house where four University of Idaho students were killed. Until now, police have only released information about five of the roommates, three of the victims and two other roommates who were not harmed. A fourth victim, Ethan Chapin, did not live at the home. A spokesperson for the Moscow Police Department tells CNN investigators are aware of a sixth person who could have potentially lived at the residence. That person was not at the residence on the night of the murders. An employee with the property management company for the home tells CNN that six people are listed on the lease, but they would not release the names. It remains unclear if that sixth person lived at the property at any point. We asked police if they have found this potential sixth roommate, questioned them, and cleared them as a suspect. All they could tell us is that they continue to investigate anyone who potentially has information about this case. Kaylee Gonsalves' mother tells CNN, quote, Kaylee had never mentioned that they were looking for a sixth roommate. If there was a sixth person on that lease, I didn't know about it. But she also said she'd never been to the home and didn't know the other roommates besides Kaylee's best friend and victim, Madison Mogan. The Gonsalves family, among those at the University of Idaho Candlelight Vigil, where hundreds of students came together to honor their fallen classmates. They shared everything. They eventually get into the same apartment together. And in the end, they died together in the same room, in the same bed. We did reach out to people connected to the house, and we have not heard back. So we don't know if a sixth roommate really did live in this house. We just know from the leasing company that there were six people on the lease. Laura. Veronica, thank you so much. I want to bring in former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, criminologist Casey Jordan, and forensic scientist Lawrence Kobolinski. I mean, just thinking about what might have transpired in that house in seeing those vigils and seeing the parents. It's just so heartbreaking. I want to begin with you here, Casey, because I have to know, I mean, we don't hear any significant or at least clear leads that are being vocalized to the public. You're a profiler. Tell me what you think this person or persons, what is your thought about who may have done this? Well, Laura, you are correct. We are coming up this weekend. It will be the three-week anniversary. And we talk a lot about getting leads and and kind of working on clues in the first 48 hours. But now that we're talking three weeks, I think my theory is shifting because statistically speaking, uh, the investigators who insist that it was targeted, meaning that it wasn't random, it was uh, an isolated event where the victims or perhaps the location was the target. I mean, this might fit if we're just looking at probability based on similar sorts of cases. Usually you're talking about a perpetrator who knows the victims or at least knows of the victims or has been in the house before. But as time goes on, they really would have had to eliminate virtually everybody. The fact that we are hearing in almost week three that there was a sixth roommate and that theories could be that I don't think they're suggesting this person might be the perpetrator, but perhaps the target was the sixth roommate. I mean, all of this convolutes everything. What we know about these similar types of attacks is kind of limited. And as time goes on, I'm more willing to believe that it is an outlier. It is a stranger. It is a transient, perhaps somebody who may have known the area, but not necessarily known the victims. Larry, when you think about that, I mean, what she had to say about the idea of there's a world of possibilities. That's the sad and really the scariest part about this and so unsettling for the community and, of course, the loved ones. 
That first 48 hours, obviously critical. The crime scene itself, also very critical. Tell me what you think the process of trying to get evidence and extract maybe DNA from the crime scene, the ways you would go about trying to not only secure it from, you know, the intervention of other people and being contaminated, but how you actually get the evidence out, what would it tell you? Well, this is a very frightening situation because we don't have any suspect and we don't have a murder weapon. Mm. Uh, But, you know, there's an old saying, follow the evidence. Uh, And I believe strongly in that. Uh, That may be the way that the police actually can turn up the name of the perpetrator here. Uh, And we know that the police have collected at least 113 different items from the crime scene. Uh, Those items could really multiply because one single item can have sub items. Like, for example, a bloody bed sheet may have multiple stains on that sheet. So there may be literally hundreds of items that have to be DNA tested. Uh, There's more than DNA, by the way. There's fingerprint analysis, there's blood spatter pattern analysis, there's trace evidence analysis. But with DNA, uh, if there is successful, if it's successfully done, uh, you may see stains that have a single source, namely from each of the victims, but you may also see mixtures. And mixtures are very, very important because if there are unknown profiles in, in a mixture, uh, that is something that needs to be followed up on. Now, there are mm. many people, many people have been in the house that are innocent, that have done nothing. They have to be checked out. They're elimination specimens. So uh, there's a mm. lot of DNA testing to eliminate those people that are not involved and to f- come down and finally come up with somebody whose name they they can actually come up with it, recognize who did this. You know, let me turn to you, Andrew, on this, because the idea of, and you can imagine the process of elimination, not the most comforting to people trying to solve, (laughs) but in many ways, the vehicle in which you do try to investigate crimes. Um, I wonder how this process will likely follow. I mean, you've got the vigils happening. Mm-hmm. You've got a whole community, if process of elimination or the idea of figuring out is the way to go, what would be the tactic you think should be taken here? Well, Laura, of course, as with any crime scene, you want the initial phase of your investigation, hopefully, to be driven by the evidence you recover from that mm-hmm. crime scene. So like we we're talking about DNA evidence, we we're talking about fingerprints, any, any physical evidence you can recover from that crime scene. There's also other elements of evidence you can collect in that area. So in other words, cell phone tower dumps. Can, you can triangulate between local cell phone towers to de- develop uh, lists of devices that were hitting off those towers in that area at that time of day. We're talking about between, I think, 3 and 4 in the morning is when they think the, the uh, murders took place. So you really want to work with that evidence first. Then you branch out and start talking to potential witnesses. So that's neighborhood canvases, um, seeking neighbors or other buildings in the area that might have video coverage that could give you a look at a vehicle or, or a person coming in or out of the uh, in or out of the residence or in or out of the area writ large. And, the, and frankly, the, the killer or killers could actually be hiding in plain sight or that's at the areas right. where people believe that they are commiserating and sharing in the pain. So that's where the vigil last night becomes incredibly important. I I hope and I would expect that the police coordinated a substantial surveillance operation to try to understand the extent uh, of folks in that crowd. It is, it's, 
I don't want to say it's likely, but it's not uncommon for the perpetrator of an event like this to actually show up at memorial services, at vigils. Really? Yeah. So if you think back to 2017, the murder of the Chinese graduate student at the University of Illinois, Yin Yun Zhang, uh, by Brent uh, Christensen, we now know is the perpetrator. Christensen attended the search. The, there was like a memorial march and a search uh, for Zhang in just a few days after the murder took place. So it's uh, just one example of what perpetrators of these sorts of violent events typically try to stay connected to the investigation in some way or form. Finally, I mean, do you think, Andrew, that we just don't know what's happening and that they're withholding information strategically because part of the investigation is not to tip off someone or to try to... Um, to intentionally lull someone into a false sense of security? Or do you have concerns about the way this is being conducted? I have concerns. I hope that what you said is the case, that they know much more than they're sharing with Mm. us and that the investigation is moving along swiftly. Um, There are some signs, I think, that are troubling. The fact that they've they've so quickly turned to canvassing, just requesting tips from the public and then following down on those very many, they've said a thousand leads they've received from the public so far. You've got to be really careful about asking for that sort of input because you end up chasing a lot of leads that go nowhere. So if they're at that point in the investigation already where they're just looking at, you know, anytime the phone rings, hoping that's the one that's going to solve the case, um, that would tell you that they are really running short on substantive investigative leads. Well, I hope that it is a matter of strategy and that these families are able to get justice and the answers they desperately need. For sure. Larry, Casey, Andrew, thank you so much. Important to have all of you on. Thank you. A black British charity CEO was repeatedly asked where she was really from by a royal household member. We have all the details and the latest scandal plaguing the royals next. A new racially charged royal scandal overshadowing the prince and princess of Wales' visit to Boston. CNN's Max Foster has the details. A royal visit to the United States, overshadowed by accusations of racism back home. A black charity executive, Ngozi Filani, told the BBC how she attended an event at Buckingham Palace earlier this week and was asked again and again where she was really from. I'm really from here. (laughs) Yeah, but okay, so I can see that this is going to be a bit of a challenge. She said, what's your nationality? And I said, lady, I was born here, I'm British. I was thinking that would be the end of it. No. No, where are you really from? Where are your people from? British media identified the palace official as 83-year-old Lady Susan Hussey, the late Queen's lady-in-waiting for more than 60 years and godmother to the Prince of Wales. Buckingham Palace responded quickly and unequivocally. The individual concerned would like to express her profound apologies for the hurt caused and has stepped aside from her honorary role with immediate effect. William and Kate touched down in Boston on Wednesday ahead of their three-day visit for the second Earthshot Prize Awards, a prize they helped set up for advances in climate science. The fiasco threatens to overshadow any focus on environmentalism. Behind closed doors, the royals will be devastated that the issue of racism within the monarchy has reared up yet again. 
Speaking to Oprah Winfrey in 2021, the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan, pointed to her own experiences of racism inside palace walls. Concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. I had to do everything I could to protect my family. Incidentally, the Duchess of Sussex and her husband, Prince Harry, released the trailer for their upcoming Netflix docuseries on Thursday. And the pair will shortly receive a Human Rights Award from the Robert F. Kennedy Foundation for their heroic stand against structural racism within the royal family, according to organisers. Like William and Kate's recent visit to the Caribbean, when they were dogged by questions about the monarchy's colonial past, this royal tour has again felt the effects of history. So what do the prince and princess think about all of this? Well, I think it's pretty frustrating, but they're doing as royals do. They keep calm, they carry on, they go to the engagements, and they're still very much focused on the big event, which is Friday night, the Earthshot Prize, something that Prince William and Kate have been building up to for months, if not years. Laura. Max, thank you so much for your reporting. And stay with us. We have more on the royals, including William and Kate's visit to the United States, and frankly, what it means for the monarchy. President Biden heading to Boston tomorrow. Will he meet the Prince and Princess of Wales as another racially charged controversy is rocking Buckingham Palace? Joining me now, CNN contributor Trisha Goddard. Trisha, I'm so glad to see you. When the you know you hear about what has happened to Ngozi Fulani, I mean the repeated questioning by this woman doubting really in her question alone that she couldn't really just have the heritage of somebody from the UK or England, but wanting to know, no, that can't be true. I mean, we've seen this before. I know you and I have talked about this in the past. This feels like deja vu, but the persistence of it, what do you think? Well, it's something that uh, many of us, uh, uh, people of color in the UK were you know, it was commonplace 25 or 30 years ago. And I think our mistake has been being lulled into, secure, you know, a false sense of security that those days were over. I mean, there are some two and a half million people of colour who see themselves as British. You only have to look at our, our soccer teams, for instance, and the stars are like Marcus Rashford. Nobody uh, asks him where he's really from when he scores a winning goal. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, a still a hangover from those days. And we have to remember, I mean, when we talk about institutional racism, we have to understand that the royal family, elements of the crown that Camilla may or may not be uh, wear on her head, are from countries that in the past Britain robbed and enslaved their people. So there, there still is that. And for people say, who say, oh, that's in their past. I mean, my mother's maiden name was Fortune, a slave name. Mm. I mean, you know, mm. my great grandparents were born into servitude and what have you. So it's not that long ago. So this whole conversation of where are your people from uh, and goes at one stage said, well, I don't know, they don't keep records, which was to touch upon the, the you know, the whole thing about slavery. We don't know where we came from. Uh, and yet this woman persisted. It, it, it's it's a difficult one to explain because it's also one of privilege. It's like mm. I'm allowed mm. to ask these questions because I'm a proper British person. Well, you know, Trisha, when you're talking, I, it's, it's striking to think of the parallels of the conversations that are happening stateside, obviously. The ideas of who is entitled to be an American, who's thought of as a real yeah. American. The ideas of 
white supremacy, the replacement theory, so many different areas that we are grappling with, it seems really globally about these issues. And it's this, almost the subtlety of the ignorance that is so stunning. I mean, the attempted yes. subtlety of it. Because the question, and she was there, I understand, for the 16 days of activism. She was there believing she was being asked about the organization she represented, the idea of trying to help to stop abuse of women and girls. And then in that moment, there's a kind of an abuse that's happening that she felt by being almost, you know, almost browbeaten into trying to say, well, yeah, this is, I guess I'm not really one of you. Yeah, there's a class thing as well going on there. And you know what is, is, is doubly frustrating is that the vast majority of our press, I've been looking through press reports. I, I've seen one in the Guardian newspaper that gives me hope. Hallelujah. But because one of the things that are very different about the UK and the US, our newsrooms are almost exclusively white. If you take away the sports desk, um, and I know many, the, the few black reporters there who have have struggled with with this. Um, if you look at the comments on some of these newspapers in answer to this whole reporting of this story, if you look at the slant of the reporting of this story, and it depends whether that newspaper has been successfully sued by a royal as to mm. how they report it. But uh, the comments underneath, many of the newspapers actually say the comments here have been moderated. I mean, yeah, I kind of... Yeah, yeah, and when you say the comments have been moderated, you know, some of them, I think, who buy the KKK? We're talking about this at a time when William and Kate are in the United mm -hmm. States of America, in Boston, right? You know, we, we think about Boston as a very critical time of the breaking away from England, the idea mm -hmm. of a rejection in this nation by a, of a monarchy. We also know that here, living today, of course, is his brother and his sister-in-law, you know, Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle. And um, I know the titles have changed, et cetera. But I just wonder, in this quest to have a, a new monarchy, this idea of trying to break away from what we're talking about, some of these connotations, the ideas and the criticism, do you think that this is something that is a setback that can be attributed to them? Or is this part of the breaking of kind of the old guard? Yeah, I think it's a part of the dismantling of the old guard. And it's not just this. I mean, we, we've got to look at, at Charles and, and Camilla. I'm a little bit biased here because, I, I mean, I've met both of them. Um, but they they are trying to make steps forward. But it's it's a it's a very old, cumbersome monster of, of, of a vehicle. You know, uh, they're not going to turn it around quickly. Mm. The press in the UK is making this very much a William uh, versus Harry. You know, they, they love this idea of the old guard versus the new guard and who are you team harry and megan or are you you know team william and kate which is just puerile it's it's so puerile but it's clickbait isn't it and, and yeah. race is always great clickbait unfortunately it persists as clickbait and and sometimes people believe that it's actually truth and we'll go down the rabbit hole and then we see the consequences for example, as you're talking about as well. Trisha Goddard, so nice to talk to you. Not about this, but always getting your insight is so important. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.